um, give up all these things, then we would, uh, in essence, you know, we're losing. And Jesus says, no. You, you, no one who's given up any of these things, their belongings or their family, uh, they will receive not only eternal life, but blessings manifold many times over. I should have noted last week that with that young ruler, we don't know what happened. We, do, we know what happened immediately in response to Jesus. It says he went away sad because he was wealthy. And so he chose. He said, no, I, I love my possessions more than I love God. But we don't know the rest of the story. And I think that's important. Our community group had a hearty discussion about this. And it was important that I, I felt like I needed to mention it. The good news is, is that he may have gone away sad. And he may have contemplated some point later down the road. You know what? I've been loving money. But love, money has not been loving me back. And, and maybe he discovered what a lot of people do, whether they want to admit it full out or not, is that money wasn't satisfying him. And in fact, he realized maybe at one point that he was in bondage to it. Perhaps he came to trust in Christ. It's a wonderful thought. And we don't know. The text doesn't choose to tell us. This week, we're in Luke 18. We're going to begin in verse 31. But I'll ask the question out of the gates for you to contemplate. Uh, how many of you want to be servants? Yeah, I mean, some of you, it's kind of a half hand raise, like, well, it depends. You know, well, that'd be fair. You know, we wouldn't naturally say that's not on our list. Young people might uh, list a whole lot of things that they want to grow up to be. Servants, maybe not one of them. But let's be honest, it's uncomfortable um, to contemplate if you have this ambition for life to be comfortable, which so many people do, imagine that if your ambition is to have convenience and, and comfort and all of these goals in front of you, that you would, you would look forward and say, where does Jesus fit into that? Well, I need Jesus to be my coach. I need Jesus to be my consultant. I need Jesus to be my co-pilot in, in, in order to reach some of those goals and that ambition. But here's the deal. You're already a servant. Okay? You don't have to grow up to be one. You, I, myself, we're all servants. It's just a question of what are we serving? Something or someone. We're probably serving a various uh, degree of desires. And uh, we're serving sometimes our dreams. We're serving the demands of others. We're serving the duties that we are called to. And I would like to argue that it would be best if we're serving a good master. One who's worthy, a master who is loving and faithful, who genuinely puts others first. That's the kind of master I would want to follow. King Jesus says, my kingdom and my economy is different. We talked about that. The, we, we hear it in other places. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He, we read earlier in the chapter that he who... He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a, it's a, there, there's an upside-down, counterintuitive way about the gospel, or the message of Jesus. As one pastor friend of mine, Seth, said it well, everything is a little bit backwards and upside-down the closer you get to the cross. Now that, that's true when we're reading the New Testament, right? When we read the gospel accounts, all of them have us moving in a particular direction. But it's, 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 it's interesting because now we're at this turning point. Everything's heading towards the cross and Jerusalem. There's a great deal of all the gospel accounts that deal with just the last 
weeks of Jesus' life and very, very little, if any, as with John, with his birth and, and some of his ministry in between. That tells me that there's a lot of airtime being given to this subject of Jesus' suffering. Let me invite you to stand as we're going to read God's word and show honor. Beginning verse 31, hear this, Luke 18. This is the very word of God. And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Verse 35, and he drew near to Jericho. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road, uh, begging, roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what did you what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Well, that's God's word. Thanks be to him. Let's ask for God's help. You may be seated. Lord, I ask that right now you would guide our thoughts away from any distractions into a deeper appreciation for our King, our Savior, Jesus. And regardless of where people are uh, this moment, this day, wherever we start, Lord, I pray that by the aid of your Holy Spirit, we would have faith and we would reach a place that is for our greater joy and your greater glory. For Christ's sake, we ask. Amen. Well, no surprise, but with the Super Bowl today, plenty of people are watching this evening. In fact, it's such a large audience that to get a 30-second slot of advertising, one of those commercials, you want to guess what the amount is? I read it this week. I wasn't looking for it. Does anybody know? $7 million for 30 seconds. You know that there's probably already a big, gigantic box of hats and T-shirts and everything that says the Chiefs won. And the Eagles. There's probably two big batches already because you know they're going to rush the field at the end tonight. And someone will throw on that hat that says Super Bowl champions. And, and, then, and then at the end, well, what happens? Well, one of those boxes goes to another part of the world where people will be glad to have one of those t-shirts because they don't care and they don't know and they'll be, they'll be welcoming it. Why do I highlight this? Everybody loves to be a winner. I'm not that competitive, but uh, I still like winning. I, I, I like to be associated. I like to be aligned with. I like it. We all know what it's like when we say, I love it when my team uh, is in the playoffs. I, it's even better when they're in the championship game, of course. Everybody does. What happens when the team leaves? Whenever the team leaves to head out, well, you know, there's a big crowd there that 
that greets the bus, whether they're driving you know, across country or heading to the airport. Everyone's there to cheer on the team. They're all gathered. Uh, and if they win, well, then there's a parade, right? You win the championship, there's going to be a big homecoming, huge celebration. If you lose, yeah, the family will be there. Great. That's, that's, that's wonderful. It reminds me when we first moved here, uh, back in 2011, the Boston Bruins ended a 39-year drought. They finally won the Stanley Cup, uh, Cup after almost 40 years, won the NHL championship game. It went to game number seven, some of you might recall, and, uh, and they beat Vancouver in Vancouver, and then they came back to Boston and uh, my neighbor recounted the whole episode to me because he went into the city to celebrate it. I, uh, you know, it was a, a big, you know, the whole north end is all lit up and people are, are cheering in the streets and celebrating as they carried the, the Stanley uh, Cup uh, through the streets. The irony here, though, is that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, but it's not to win like many, think, many people think and assume and want. In fact, the irony is, is that when he reaches the city, here's where it, it, it lies. He goes into the city and, and, and we'll read about it in the next chapter. There's the triumphal entry and uh, the other gospel accounts, uh, you know, note this as well. But they're singing praise to him. Hosanna. Glory be to God. You know, they're they're saying, blessed be the, the name of the Lord, uh, the king of Israel. The irony, the end of the week after the cross or even building up to the cross, crucify him, crucify him. I don't know him. Imagine what it's like. doesn't feel like Jesus heading into a severe suffering and then ultimately a crucifixion. It doesn't feel anything like winning or victory. It feels like defeat. It would have been strange this morning for the, for the 12, knowing what they knew at that time, to stand up and sing, I cherish the old rugged cross. They would say, that's ridiculous. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Well, let's not be mistaken. Jesus isn't a winner or a loser. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even about that. He's not a winner or a loser for our gain or for our shame. But let's get his identity correct. And this passage gives us a clear picture, I think, part of a clear picture of the fact that he is Messiah, that he is the anointed one that we call the Christ. Three ways I want to divide this up. I have it listed there. There are questions in the order of service. The first is this. What did the disciples expect? What does the blind man want? And then the so what? That's the, what, is that we, what is it that we need? Well, first of all, what did the uh, disciples expect? Well, this is actually uh, the third time. uh, There's actually a heading in some people's translation of the Bible. This is the third time that Jesus foretells uh, his suffering and death. The journey to Jerusalem began back in chapter 9. That's the biggest turning point. For those of you who might read through uh, Luke, you see this significant turning point at the Mount of Transfiguration. They're all pumped you know, the, the closest disciples with Jesus. And then he says, and now we're going down and we're going to we're going to Jerusalem. And the son of man is going to be you know, given over into the hands of those who would persecute and kill him. They didn't get it then. They didn't get it the second time. They didn't get it this third time. It just won't penetrate. It's unbelievable to them. It, it's it's. Uh, it's beyond their comprehension. Verse 31 says. 
Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, now, for many who thought, oh, well, we've already acknowledged you as king, and we know what the Messiah is to do. The Messiah is to, to reign. We're going to go to the capital city. There's the, the, the Mount Zion. That's why he says we're going up to Jerusalem, even though they were probably heading south. Uh, and they're heading up to the Mount of Jerusalem. This would be the capital city. This would be the perfect place and time for him to assert himself as king and demonstrate his power. They've already seen him show tremendous power. They don't have any reason to doubt that he can do this. The verses that follow this are literally an unfolding, you know, it's almost like a, you know, a table of contents for the remaining chapters of, of Luke. Jesus enters into his passion leading up to the cross. Of course, it does mention his resurrection. That too, evidently they didn't hear, couldn't hear, didn't want to hear. It's puzzling to them. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, what did they expect from Jesus? They're traveling around with Jesus for quite some time. They have witnessed incredible things, miracles. Jesus has even raised people from the dead. They've heard with their very ears the teaching and the wisdom of, of Christ's message. And his message is about the coming kingdom and the fact that he is the king. They believe that he's the king. But the opposition was very clear and the power uh, of the oppressing you know, forces of Rome are there. And the disciples perceived themselves as being on the winning team. And this is exciting. But then, of course, the inauguration of the king is not what they expect. And it's not going to free them from Roman oppression. Jesus isn't coming to, to conquer their most pressing opponent that they uh, perceive as politically. He's coming to conquer something else. Jesus is coming and through his death to conquer sin, death, hell, the grave. And how would we do it? Okay, back to our upside down, right? It's going to be through weakness and through suffering. That is the way of the cross. How do we know that? Well, Jesus has already articulated it, but it wasn't a surprise to him. And it shouldn't have been a surprise to some of the others because the Hebrew Bible said that. That's Jesus' Bible. And Jesus knew his Bible really well. He carries around the, the law and the prophets. He knows the narrative. He knows the poetry. He knows what's coming because, well, he's God. But he also knows the, the, the scriptures. This is not a, in other words, he knows that there is a divine plan. It's not some type of, you know, stitched together strategy that is in response to something. Clearly, Jesus knows all along that this was the divine plan of God. This would not be a surprise, uh, you know, an afterthought or a, a sour ending to what was altogether otherwise a pretty successful ministry. This is the culmination of a fruitful, successful ministry. Jesus is in submission to the divine plan. Even the words of Jesus echo one of these prophecies concerning the suffering servant. It was the prophet Isaiah in chapter 15. Jesus even takes, it's like he takes these words up almost. He says, Isaiah 50 verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near Isaiah 50. Jesus knows these words and he is setting his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Excruciating pain, 
excruciating humiliation. The humiliation to think of what it was like for Jesus to endure betrayal, misunderstanding, false accusation, physical beating, uh, mockery. It, it's just, it, it was so bad that at the end, he's unrecognizable. The blood. We, we would do well from time to time to contemplate what that is like. And that Jesus saw and knew and perceived that coming. That too, by the way, is a fulfillment of another prophecy, which Isaiah 52, verse 14, I'll let, I'll let you go read it for yourself. But the fact that he was beaten so bad that he was unrecognizable is a fulfillment of a prophecy hundreds of years prior. The twelve, that is the disciples, like I mentioned, cannot understand. One commentator wrote it this way. He says, how can such clarity be met with such density? Density. Well, you want to give him some credit, okay? I mean, after all, look at the text. What What does verse 34 say? It was hidden from them. Come on, you know, like let's. Let's show a little bit of, you know, let's show a little little compassion, a little empathy here. But at the same time, the way that it's described in these three times that Jesus predicts and foretells his death and the the subsequent reactions and responses that they ought to have. It indicates that they ought to. The impression is that they ought to have understood, but their expectations got them in a place. Their expectations focused in one direction, developed for them also some blind spots to the side. And, the, and thus they can't. They cannot understand. And by the way. We all have them. We all have them. As. Not only driving down the road. But living our lives and trying to navigate it. We all have blind spots. And one of the biggest contributors to that. Reality. That problem of blind spots. Is pride. The other one is an allergy that I have. And that's to suffering. Anybody else have that one? Thank you. I appreciate that, Jay. I, you know, it's, I just get one, but yeah, I'll take it. You got another one over here? Anybody else allergic to suffering? How about debt? Yeah? That is part of developing a blind spot. It's a combination of those that's likely obstructing their vision. The disciples have an obstructed vision. And we might overlook it, but something tells me that they did not. If you look carefully at the text at the very outset, what does Jesus say? He didn't say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. He said, We're go- we are going up to Jerusalem. And then the Son of Man will have these things happen to him. That was so hard for them. This is, what, this is the man that we have hitched our wagon to, so to speak, as disciples. They're confused. So what do they expect? Well, we've already covered that. They, they expected a king with, with victory, not suffering and weakness. What does this blind man want? The disciples have a blind spot. But this man, this blind beggar, it's truly vision impaired. He, he's not able to... To see and, and appreciate life. He's probably poor as a result of that. Because he doesn't have a means to provide for himself. Jesus gives him a hearing. Jesus shows this man compassion. Jesus in verse 40 draws near to him. And then in verse 41 says. What do you want from me? 
Well, I want mercy. Why does he want mercy? Well, it's obvious. He, he needs sight. He wants to be able to have it recovered. Evidently, he's heard of Jesus of Nazareth and his power, his, his capacity to heal. But I love it, the fact that Jesus, if you contemplate it, all that he's done and said and all of his ministry building up until now, he, he has his face set like flint towards Jerusalem. All the chaos, all the impending betrayal and suffering, all of the noise, all that's going on in his life and his mission is before him. And yet he doesn't miss an opportunity as much as everybody else is like, get out of the way, shut up. Um, that Jesus says, no, 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 bring him forward. And he has compassion and shows this man mercy. But don't think that there is no significance to the fact that he opens his eyes, the blind man's eyes. I always like to highlight that. Remember, folks, Jesus performed miracles, but it wasn't just for show, show and tell. It wasn't. It, this is not a magic show. It's not like Jesus jumped up in the air and, you know, did, you know, a helicopter and then landed on his two feet. And everyone went, wow, you have so much power. That would be pretty amazing. But it really wouldn't communicate anything like healing the sick and feeding the hungry. Walking even on water is not a magic show. It, it, it is demonstrating his power over nature. We said this last week in his kingdom. He is casting out demons. It's for the health and the joy of people. It's also showing forth his authority over the spiritual realm. So Jesus heals this man who is blind, but those, he would enter into the city and all the people who should have been able to see and perceive that he is Messiah are the ones who are closed off to it because they're blind to his true identity. At a previous point, when Jesus is praised for healing other people, he deflects it. There are instances, I'll give you one in Matthew 9, he heals two blind men, and then he says to them, see to it that no one knows about this. But that's not the case here, because the timing is different. The timing was right now. It's fully in view. He doesn't say, verse 38, the man's like, the son of David, the son, the son of David, you are the king, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, yeah, it's time to go public. That's me. He doesn't, he doesn't deflect it. He doesn't, he doesn't silence it. What does the blind man want? Well, he wants mercy. He wants, he wants to be healed. But what does he get from Jesus? Three words. So much more. And we know that it's partly indicated in the fact that he doesn't just go and salute Jesus and turn around and walk another direction. He follows him. He surrenders. We, we, we understand that he was given not only eyes to see physically, but spiritually because he follows Jesus. He glorifies him, praises God, tells other people. He's no longer a blind beggar. Thanks be to God. But now he's going to begin a life as a servant. A servant to the king. So what about Jesus and his identity? Here, let us not be mistaken. Like I said earlier, Jesus isn't a winner or a loser. He's just plain and simple, a suffering servant who's coming back someday as a victorious king. 
That's a game changer. That's good news for us. So what do we need? Let's, let's give some attention to intersecting their world, our world, our lives, our response to this by faith. We may list any number of things. If I were to press you, I know so many of you, and I know you well, and I know what you might say. What do you need most in life right now? And I, I, would, I would say, yeah, I can identify it. I need tranquility or peace. I need, I, I, I need a new job. I need, I need healing in this broken relationship. I, I need uh, strength to, to overcome you know, some of the, the things that weigh down on my emotions and my physical body. There are any number of things I'm sure we could say are real struggles and real sorrows. And that would be like the thing that I need. For this man, it was sight. But it was obviously something much deeper He received mercy and grace to cover his sin. And the pride and unbelief that it was his spiritual blindness. Being poor and blind was not his liability. It was his opportunity. The fact that he was was poor and that he was unable to see didn't position him away from the gospel. It endeared him to the good news of Jesus. It was an opportunity for him to see his true and perceive his Need for God. Beyond the pressing problem of sight, the greatest need, and, and, the great, and, and beyond the, the presenting need that you might have. Even if it might be something spiritual. God, I mean, one of the ones that, I, who was I talking to this week that said, I, I, I need contentment. Well, let's give a hearty amen to that. That's so evasive. Well, even if it's something as precious and beautiful as the rare jewel of Christian contentment, still yet, our greatest need is to be forgiven, that our debt would be paid, that we would be reconciled to a holy God. What is sin? There's a number of definitions to sin. One Bible teacher put it well, sin is servants putting themselves in the place of a king. What's the opposite of sin? Well, it's salvation. (laughs) So what's salvation? If sin, let me read it again, is servants putting themselves in the place of king. But salvation is the king putting himself in the place of servants. So don't miss it. Jesus did not die on accident. Jesus came into our world with the utmost humility, positioning himself for slaughter, that he might die, that we might have life, that he might be poor, that we might be spiritually rich, that he might be humble, that we might be exalted. Jesus headed into Jerusalem, but what was his crown and what was his throne? Not going to say anything you haven't heard already, but please hear it. Jesus goes to Jerusalem and his crown is one of thorns and his throne is a cross that he ascends. Question. This might seem like a little bit of a detour, um, but, but bear with me. Uh, who, who is your biggest critic? I see some of you putting your elbow into your spouse, and I want to. I just want to encourage you not to do that right now. Some of you are looking, you know, at your parents. Some of you are thinking about your boss. Some of you are thinking about parents that are, you know, thousands of miles away. 
Some of you will say, no, I'm my biggest critic. All of those are wrong. I love you. No, no offense here. Uh, but your biggest critic is the cross. Now, you may say, what? Now, bring that into focus a little bit. Okay. It's only at the cross where Jesus sends a very clear message that you cannot save yourself. That you cannot improve yourself. You cannot deny yourself enough. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot do enough penance or good deeds or religious activity to gain God's favor and secure assured salvation justification. It's not possible. And the cross is saying, you can't do it. You need, you are helpless. The cross is saying to you and to me, you're helpless. You're blind. You're in debt. And you need forgiveness. Thanks be to God. That's what we see. We see grace. We see grace for sinners. We see the gravity of of our sin and our need. And one day, one day we will see him ascend the throne and he will be the powerful king and and deal with all the oppression and evil and injustice. He will deal with all of the unrighteousness. He will deal with all the things that are his and our enemies. But we need what the disciples, so we need what the disciples expected. What did they expect? They expected an exalted king. That's future. We need that. What else do we need? Well, we need the mercy and the spiritual vision that this blind beggar got. But what we really need is Jesus. We need Jesus and his mercy. And to understand that, we need a tiny bit of faith and a huge amount of humility, if you will. We need humility. We need a humility that we can see clearly, horizontally and vertically God and people. We need to be united to Christ so that we can understand suffering more clearly. Everyone loves to be a winner. And weakness doesn't feel that way. But the way to victory for Christ and his followers is surrender and self-denial. And if we don't, if we don't surrender, then we'll be blind and we'll be enslaved. There's no other way. There's not, there's not a, an alternative it's hard to even hear this. It's, it's hard to contemplate this. You might be saying, I don't even know what you're talking about. Servanthood and slavery and all that stuff. I'm fine. I, I'm better than a lot of people. Those losers and addicts and compulsively misbehaving irreligious people in the world. You've got your own set of names, right? I don't even like to repeat them. They're not, they're not pretty. Maybe you say them under your breath. But that's part of the problem. We have to acknowledge That apart from God, we're all in bondage. And we're all serving some taskmaster. Bad taskmasters. One of those bad taskmasters. Remember how you're all servants. We're all servants. One of those bad taskmasters is self. That self-reference propensity that prevents us from the true Service of others that brings us joy and the true glory of God is why self becomes centered. 
The blind beggar wants freedom to see again, to work, to make a living. But it's his humility and it's his faith that has given him real freedom to now go and follow and serve King Jesus, right? That's why, let's look at the text again. Verse 43, what does he do when he does have his sight recovered? And immediately this man recovers his sight, followed him into Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. One of my favorite authors and, and Bible teachers down through the years, John Stott, who I had, had a chance to meet before he passed away about 20 years ago, and I had an ultimate put-my-foot-in-my-mouth episode. Uh, I, have, I have a number of those, and that one ranked pretty high. I'll tell you the story some other time. John Stott wrote this. True freedom is... True freedom, then, is this. It's exactly the opposite of what many people think. It's not freedom... It's not freedom from all responsibility to God and others in order to live for myself. That is bondage to my own self-centeredness. Instead, true freedom is freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and others. So, and, and hear me on this one. I'm almost finished. The invitation is not to be a servant and then get the rewards of God. It's, this is not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to hype us up and, and determine your will to be a person who is a humble servant. If you're humble, then you will serve. It, it, you, don't, you don't become out of effort that. You, it's an invitation to see our prideful blind spots and to surrender with humility. There was a wonderful hymn just over 100 years ago by Kate Wilkinson. And I'll close with this. It's called, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. And in this hymn, she writes, May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything, that I may be calm to comfort, sick and sorrowing. She closes, May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. Father, we want to know that victory in a fresh way today. Not because we're in love with winning, but because we're in love with Jesus and we're humbled. We, we ask that you would work in a mighty way in our own hearts. We know that your word was written that we might hear and see and perceive of the wondrous things that you've done, like healing this man. And yet the greatest thing that has happened for us and for, for so many of your churches is salvation. Is forgiveness, is being reconciled to you. God, I pray that you would have mercy today on people who are struggling, struggling with hope and depression, loneliness. There, there are people facing a whole variety of trials and temptations. I pray that you would keep them close to you, that it would press them into a prayerful dependence. Lord, there are people trying to obey their conscience and do the right thing. Maybe even in response to this sermon, your word, guide them, strengthen them. May all of us respond in a way that is showing forth the fruit of repentance and faith. Lord, I pray you'd comfort and encourage those who are grieving. Would you please have mercy? Would you build us into a community that is... Humble. We're the first persons to admit that we're wrong and we don't have the answers, that we do need help, 
that we're willing to honor others above ourselves, to think of others more highly than ourselves. Make us a people like that. And that people would see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven, our Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And as he